Chapter 8 It was three months later that he found himself in his office, presiding over the latest of his rather ill-advised open auditions. They weren't all crap. That was at least something. No, some of them had been spectacularly atrocious. Take Bertha Belknap, for instance. Right then, describe your act to me. How do you mean describe it? You're looking at it. Actually, he'd been doing his best not to look at it. However, the presence of a 64 triple G chest in a person's office did make it rather difficult to look at anything else. This is a variety act of some description. She looked at him in disgust. God, he missed Anthea. These two are going to make me my fortune. Apart from being sponsored for advertising like a couple of Goodyear blimps, he found that highly unlikely. Do they do anything? Christ on a bike! He hadn't been expecting an actual demonstration. I can lift them. I can separate them. If you had a bottle of lemonade on you, I could have the lid of it off in two seconds with this manoeuvre. It's best when you shake the lemonade up first, though. It gives a rather nice effect. His mind was already there, in possession of a front row ticket. It was a nice effect. It was a wonderful effect. It was, quite simply, a... God, how he missed Anthea. This was ridiculous. He was better than this. Bertha wasn't even attractive. She was a freak of some description. It was the fact he hadn't slept with a woman for three months. That was the real issue. He was frustrated. I'm very impressed, obviously, but it just doesn't seem very showbiz to me. More like, dare I say it, porn? She looked at him as though he'd just told her that her name was Bertha Belknap. What's your point? Did he have a point? That was a very good point. His agency did have standards. They were low, all right, but they weren't there. That wasn't true, actually. His personal standards were, for the most part, high. It was the professional standard of those he was expected to work with which tended to let the side down. I just don't think I can really take you where you want to go with this act. Good grief! Had she really just warmed up a panini by leaving it under the left one for at least as long as she'd been in that office with him? Perhaps he might have been a bit hasty. On the other hand, I can definitely see a market for those sandwiches. I'll take six. Maybe an ecologically sound and visually impressive little concession stand somewhere along the A12? Oh no, you won't, big boy. Pardon? Have you got a bottle of lemonade? She was advancing towards him rapidly. In practice, that meant that she'd simply turned around to face him and breathed out. They were both giants in their field. She flaunted the best efforts of some of the most morally dubious plastic surgeons in South America, while he carried the effects of having been hand-fed non-stop by representatives from the departments of guilt, depression and loneliness for the past three months. Not on me, no. Have you got anything else I could try to get the lid off of? Er, uh, no. Best not. He really ought to at least try and look her in the eyes. It was degrading for her to have him talking to her chest like that. It didn't say a hell of a lot for him, either. What's the matter with you, mate? There's nothing the matter with me, love. What's the matter with you? 
I thought you were looking for new acts to represent. Well, yes and no. I'm searching for people with a genuine dream to fulfil. I just can't quite see what yours would be. Although I have to say, I'm almost too terrified to even look. That would have carried more weight if you could actually have torn his gaze away from her chest in order to make that point in the first place. She rolled her eyes as though even having to explain herself to this ignorant dolt was completely beneath her. I want to be famous, of course. Oh, Jesus, not another one. Why? She launched into a 60-second spiel of attempted justification. It would certainly not ever have passed muster with Nicholas Parsons, not with the word rich being the victim of repetition eight times, the word celebrity nine times, the phrase, you know, a dozen times, qualifying on a separate front as a series of rather significant hesitations into the bargain, and she'd even offered to go out and find a bottle of lemonade, thereby chucking in quite a significant deviation from the subject at large as well. He was far from being any sort of prude, but he was about as relieved as he could ever remember being when he finally managed to get her out of that office. She left with the name and number of another, more specialised manager, one who'd already proved, particularly over the course of the last three months, that he would allow his clients to do anything if it meant publicity and a fast buck. She hadn't taken kindly to being palmed off onto another man without the opportunity to do her party trick, but she still managed to storm off with her head held high. It was probably just about the only way she could keep upright, thinking back on it. If only she'd offered to bring back those half-dozen paninis during her quest for a bottle of Schweppes, things could have been so different. He spent several moments leaning up against the door, just in case she decided to blast her way back in there. He was a hypocrite, and he knew it. Had not his own ex-wife become famous first and foremost for her own chest? And was she not to be found on the cover of every NAF magazine going, accompanied by that beautifully bum-cheeked interloper? The bloke Humphrey had actively encouraged to go after her. Yes. Well, nobody ever said any of his ideas were necessarily sensible. Although, getting Bertha out of his office without breaking out the mixers was one of the most sensible things he'd ever done in his life. He was only assuming that Anthea's exposure to publicity was still continuing at that kind of relentless pace. He had initially endeavoured to keep completely up to date with her career, for want of a better word for it, but that had rapidly proved far too painful. It was also quite soul-destroying to find himself being so obviously and relentlessly manipulated by everyone with crap they wanted her to try and flog him, or anyone with a hidden agenda they wanted her to be the spokesperson for. She'd never quite managed to tell him what to do when they were married, yet her opinion was now perceived to be so vitally important to the population at large that whole articles were devoted to what shoes she had on, what she thought about the war in Syria, and what brand of aftershave she particularly liked her fiancé to wear. Fiancé. That had been the final editorial straw, that had. There were lots of posed pictures with the two of them looking happy in a variety of down-market places and in a variety of beautiful outfits. The price of the clothes and the shoes and the makeup was always hidden very discreetly somewhere on the page. Clearly, Anthea and Mr Perfect weren't expected to pay a king's ransom for any of it, but Joe Public were being asked to fork out a fortune for the stuff, purely on their say-so. Before that, there had been the initial, inevitable, trash magazine exclusive, Why We Owe Our Fairy Godmother One, 
Humphrey had spotted that across a crowded newsagent and had been instantly fearful as to what he might find inside. With relief, however, he discovered that the article explained merely how they'd got back together and the plans they had for their immediate future. Oh, with a nice selection of prizes from the cruise company, which had gained so much in free publicity from the whole thing. Humphrey had been absolutely delighted to discover that his input had not figured at all, the fairy godmother of their story being of the more generic variety. With a gratuitous shot of Barney bending over to tie up her shoelaces, a nice, quirky little touch that even Humphrey had been able to appreciate, and another quick advert, this time for the bra that had set her celebrity ball rolling in the first place, they were gone. Only to pop up in a virtually identical magazine the very next day, in virtually the same pose, and with an almost identical tissue of lies with which to wipe the smiles off their Z-list rivals' faces. Humphrey and Anthea, our guilty secret. Christ on a skateboard. That one had almost given the original Humphrey a coronary, right there on the petrol station forecourt. Any number of permutations and combinations had crossed his mind as he'd pulled on a pair of the disposable gloves they leave lying around in places like that, for just such occasions as those, and advanced very warily upon that magazine. The guilty secret? That was nothing more than a soundbite enabling them to have two almost identical exclusives going at the same time. A nod of acknowledgement for the shameless way they were whoring themselves around in full view of some of the most gullible members of society including the original Humphrey, who had succumbed to a box of black magic on the basis of Anthea being splayed across a chocolate-brown sofa, £999 plus delivery. He had bought a copy of that magazine, too, purely on the strength of that photograph, and some rubber ducks of his own, so he could enjoy it in more intimate fashion the next time he was once more solely in the company of his bedbugs. It was fair to say, though, that Anthea looked wonderful in every single photo that was out there. And that really had been a real old turn-up for the books. Of course, he'd always thought she looked wonderful, no matter what stage of nature's reclamation of her had been reached at any particular time. Even with the single eyebrow and the beard, he'd always found her stunning. In many ways, she was even more beautiful to him looking like that. There was no pretense with Anthea, at least not then. You took her, or you left her. But this new Anthea was facially flawless, to such an extent that, half the time, even the man who had been married to her for twelve years would not have been able to pick her out of a police line-up. She was a remarkable advert for the powers of the airbrush, that was all. It didn't feel like too much of a betrayal, nor all that much of a loss, when he stopped reading those kinds of magazines and avoided those sorts of daytime TV shows. It had immediately put pay to any of those revitalised homicidal tendencies the side of Barney seemed to inspire in him as well. Humphrey, not Barney. Two Humphreys, no Barney. Not even the mention of a Barney. Smart move by his manager, that, given the number of police incident reports that bloody name had headlined in its time. All the same, to imply that he'd never existed was somewhat harsh. His mother would undoubtedly miss him, unless she was the sort who could happily wash her hands of children as and when the mood, or indeed the milk float, took her. And so it was that, three months after his spell as a floating Cameron Mackintosh, 
Humphrey was in virtual ignorance as to the activities, or even the whereabouts, of his carefully bound together golden couple. He hadn't seen anybody else from that evening's adventures again in that time either, although in every single case that was no doubt a blessing in disguise. Leopold had decided to persevere with his seafaring entertainment career, on the condition that he could work on developing his Liberace Tribute Act. Humphrey would have had a hard time selling that sort of thing to a landlocked public with a huge choice of alternative entertainment available to them and no imagination, especially one whose average age did not involve three figures. Leopold had found his niche. Plus he found a way of wearing some really quite gorgeous sparkly outfits in a legitimate professional capacity, the jammy swine. The two dancers had taken the credit for the choreography that night and had found themselves given an almighty shove up the career ladder as a result. Humphrey had, however inadvertently, made a positive difference to both their lives. Hopefully, the warm feeling that knowledge brought with it would be able to help him keep the icicles from hanging off his nose or his toilet system, or probably both in equal measure, come January. Jeremiah had proved to be such a wow with the passengers of that cruise ship that Louise had persuaded someone from management to authorise a rolling contract for him. He had at least used the nearest telling bone in order to ask Humphrey for his permission first, God bless him, but there was never any question of him not taking the position. A decent cabin, a healthy salary, paid weekly in cash, just in case, and almost nothing by way of a job description. All they wanted him to do was wander around the boat, with the assistance of any motorised mode of transport he saw fit, provided that the thought of the technology involved in making it work did not send him screaming from the scene, and make the rest of the passengers feel, not to put too fine a point on it, young. It was a nice idea, thoughtful with respect to the passengers and very kind to Jeremiah. Trust Louise to have come up with something like that. She was one hell of a woman wherever she was. It was a reasonable assumption to make that she was probably not still the entertainment director of that ship, not given her elevation to the ranks of the trophy fiancés. Her contract would either have been run down or bought up, with the latter being the most likely if he knew Michael. By now she would be hanging off his arm, doing her best to pretend that she was hanging from his every word, or probably wanting to hang herself. Poor girl. No. Smart girl. Provided that at least one of her dreams had come true. As for Humphrey himself, he was coping all right. His dreams of being some kind of Lothario had been forced to take a back seat, though. Abandoned very soon after the very first, and most definitely the very last, of his dates had invited him to take her in the back seat of his dodgy old Nissan Micra. She was beautiful, mind you. A high flyer involved in something incomprehensible in the city who had been struck by a sudden attack of civil conscience and who decided she should abandon it all and enrol on a burger flipping course somewhere. She was young, talented and innocent enough to have thought that going out for a drink of celebration with her new life coach was a good idea. It would have been a good idea too had he not seen fit to mention that blasted song. The lyrics lost a great deal of their power to shock and or offend when set to such ridiculous music. When simply blurted out over half a shandy in a bowl of Bombay mix, it was posthumously evident, after the death of their date, 
that they could be taken in a rather different way, a rather more literal way. She had got hold of the wrong end of his stick that evening, which was, thankfully, not the more literal approach to that situation. The would-be Don Juan had been utterly horrified. His rear axle would have gone, his suspension too, and the car would have fared no better. His position as her mentor had become confused in her mind with her position in his motor. Power was an aphrodisiac, that was all. But it also came with a huge responsibility. She, like Bertha Belknap, had paid the ultimate price for his moral fortitude. Or his lack of any sort of sense of adventure, whichever answer's turn it would be to torment him on any future evening while he was alone, contemplating that question with his bedbugs. He wanted Anthea. There. He could admit that. Nobody could hear him. He was alone, without even those bedbugs, fearfully keeping his full weight pressed against the door in order to repel any future advances from Bertha Belknap. He didn't want her to uniquely twist the lid of his beverage any more than he wanted his bum print or any other flipping one forever imprinted upon his car upholstery. If he didn't include his adventures in the Welsh capital, he had strayed only once from the path of Anthea, which was in itself unforgivable for any number of reasons, but which he managed to just about justify to himself on the basis that the lady involved had reminded him so very much of his ex-wife. As far as he was concerned, he'd been making passionate love to her. Finally, and to great effect, as the lady concerned had no doubt appreciated. Anthea should have appreciated it herself when they were bound by the ties of marriage, though, not via a tied-up third party. He had, of course, also had sex with her for a quarter of an hour, albeit on another man's metre, but that had been her idea. Closure, or something like that. Professionally, he was overworked, and he was frustrated. December was always a tough month in his occupation, at least in the reluctant showbiz manager's side of things. It was a month of parties and pantomimes, of Santa's grottos and grotty Santas. Anyone already on his books who was under five feet tall had been kitted out with their Snow White cast member clobber since June. Anyone who could pull a top hat out of a rabbit had been stocking up on the Valium since around that time too, in anticipation of all those kids' parties they would be juggling. Some of them made the hen night that had proved to be the real launch to Barney's career look like a meeting of the girl guides. Bertha had not been the first one to, very significantly, darken his life that day, although, for obvious reasons, she had somewhat eclipsed his memories of any of the others. In fact, the only one he could recall with any clarity at all was Simon something or other. He remembered him. Simon something or other was a very nice chap, over seven feet in height, who had managed to bang his head on the doorframe as he tried to come in, and who had, quite possibly, damaged both himself and the main floor joists for the flat above while he was about it. Once he'd regained something approaching consciousness, Humphrey had finally got around to interrogating his gigantic visitor as to his intentions. A bandage around his bleeding head had been a top priority, before Humphrey passed out again. He reacted quite badly to the sight of blood, perhaps as a result of his years with Anthea. She'd never really been deliberately violent towards him, 
confining herself on the whole to a bit of cup-chucking and door-slamming, as and when the mood took her. He always seemed to find himself on the wrong side of whichever door had been slammed, which was usually the same side as she was. Mind you, that itself should have been perfect, and all indications were that it could have been, had the anthea of his epic fifteen minutes been any of the antheas he'd encountered at any time during their marriage. One in four. Not good odds in themselves, but it shouldn't have been too difficult to find a system that would beat Anthea's particular casino. A position report from the moon, her handcuffs, her evening primrose oil, and the sharpest objects in the house were all that should have been needed. Golly, mister. Door slamming never seemed to figure prominently during her most sexually vibrant, voracious and volatile phase. That was the one week in four she would pounce on him as he left the safety of the shower or smoke him out of the loft with a trail of Maltesers. That was, therefore, the week where she should have then backed off and left him to his own devices. It hadn't always been her who'd had big plans for those handcuffs. She should have been moaning all evening, all right, but certainly not in the way she'd always ended up doing, having a go at him for taking things rather too quickly. He would have been equally happy to have provided any number of services for her during any of the other weeks too, although that was most usually the time she would have him trapped in a room with her while she vented her feelings with regard to how useless he was, or how spineless he was, or how ugly he was, or even worse for him to have to listen to, those exact same descriptions turned upon herself. He could always defend himself against any charges, if he was feeling particularly brave, but she never listened to a word of his witness statements destroying the case against her, no matter how eloquently or how passionately he tried to deliver them. That accounted for another two weeks in every four, with one being written off entirely due to her hormones, and the other because he'd always performed so abysmally upon reaching the end of that trail of Maltesers. One week in four, she would not let him anywhere near her. Maybe it was the sort of person he was, but he'd always like to target that particular week as the one time each month when he could make her see how much he truly loved her. Even when he had promised to take care of all laundry concerns, and to never subsequently refer to the erotic events contributing to any undoubtedly challenging personal encounter, she'd still always completely turned him down. Quite an insult, that, really. No chance to make her listen to him as he told her just how wonderful she was when she most needed it. Just an opportunity to hear the sort of language Mike Bassett made full use of in his two nil down team talks. And no chance to make her listen to him as he told her just how wonderful she was when he most needed it either. Just an opportunity to fill up her hot water bottle for her. If he was lucky. He hated the sight of blood all right. What had he been thinking about there? Anthea, again? So predictable. What had he been thinking about before that? Ah, yes. Simon something or other. It was a pity that chap's timing had been so many months out, thus not leaving himself enough time for the necessary rehearsals, for he'd actually hit upon the sort of idea that might well have revolutionised all future productions involving Snow White's septet of burglary victims. Because Simon something or other, a seven-foot-tall prison governor with a face not unlike a rooster Cogburn-era John Wayne, 
had been there to put himself forward for the role of the beautiful Snow White himself. Facially, that was a bigger non-starter than Humphrey's Nissan Micra. Logically, though, it was truly tragic that he'd not presented himself in that office six months or so earlier. He could have saved one lucky local theatre company a fortune, since diminutive actor types tended to be able to charge a premium during the entire month of December and halfway into January as well. With a seven-foot-tall heroine, practically anybody could have represented the dwarfs up on that stage. It was a lovely twist on the expected. Next year, he'd been promised. Next year. In the meantime, Humphrey decided to try to convince whoever was in charge of the nativity scene in the shopping precinct to let Simon something or other take the place of the Virgin Mary for the odd half an hour, as and when he felt the need to get in his car, drive to Brentwood and let off some professional steam. He knew from experience that just ten minutes spent in the right fabrics, or the right shoes, or the right makeup could make all the difference to the way a person could cope with the sort of crap the average day tended to consistently chuck at them. It was either that or some kind of drug and alcohol combo. Simon something or other would be doing no harm. Mary herself might not have been too pleased with her modern day interpretation, but any incredulity aimed at Simon could surely just as easily be turned right back on her and her immaculate conception. It didn't sound very likely, scientifically speaking, that was all. Something made Humphrey take a very sudden break from all thoughts of great big men and virgins. It was a sound coming from just outside his premises. It was the sound of a car engine. A great big F-off car engine, hideously fuel inefficient, horribly expensive, and part of the private automobile collection of someone hideous and horrible who Humphrey immediately wished would just F right off again. Michael parked on his own personal double yellow line, of course. Well, well, well. Michael had to make himself look busy because otherwise, even after a three-month ceasefire, that git would have the upper hand within the first three seconds of laying eyes on him. His desk would have been the most reasonable place for him to be making himself look busy if it hadn't been for two things. First, there was no chocolate anywhere in it on it or under it, apart from his emergency bounty bar, which, by definition, was not there to be eaten, but purely to offer moral support. Second, and of very slightly more importance, there was a letter sat upon it he instinctively did not want to open. It was a letter from his accountant. Yes, he could just imagine the contents of that one. Was that three exclamation marks he could just about make out there through the envelope? Right there? Just after the word, urgent? Humphrey sniffed casually, hoping to calm the rest of himself down with such a brave act of feigned nonchalance. It seemed to work, as the adrenaline from the entire scenario dissipated into the vastness of his body and simply left him feeling hungry instead. He dropped the letter face up onto his desk, where it landed with a heavy thud. There was unquestionably more than just a sheet of headed foolscap in this one. Never mind. It wasn't as though the general content of this letter would differ significantly from any of the others that had already found him to be a decidedly hostile recipient. Besides, opening that letter would have been just what his accountant would have expected him to do. Although he wouldn't dump this one straight in the bin.
Not just yet. It will be something boring to do with his taxes, or his lack of finances, or both. He had no time for any of that rubbish. It was just maths for grown-ups, and consequently, it was too boring to waste any valuable time on. Besides which, the Rosetta Stone couldn't have helped him make sense of any of it. He was 150% certain that letter was something to do with that. 150%? That showed a certain blatant disregard for figures and for accepted convention that his accountant would doubtless both recognise and be able to fully appreciate. Michael would notice it, that was for sure. The question was, was there really any point in Humphrey trying to hide it from him? Leaving it there would show a certain level of maturity. Being a man, even in the face of adversity. After all, he wasn't trying to ignore it, hoping that the contents would somehow disappear in a puff of smoke and cease to be any sort of problem. Humphrey knew very well what was contained within it. As near as damn it, anyway. He heard the door to somehow opening. Suddenly the envelope to that letter seemed like the most interesting thing in the world. Boy? No, God damn him. Humphrey wasn't going to respond to that. He would carry on examining every single aspect of that envelope instead. And then, when he felt like it, he might just look up and glance at his visitor. When he felt like it, he might just look up and notice the strange-looking person with a leather jacket, the aviated glasses, and the extremely artificial-looking shade of orange hair. Good grief! Surely it was Beaker from the Muppets. Oh, Christmas must have come early. You look lovely, sir. Apart from the expression on his face. Cheer up, you miserable old sod. You hold your tongue. I'll take my belt here. What belt? He wasn't even wearing a belt. He didn't need one. Those leather pants must have been painted on. What the hell was going on with those trousers? You're putting on the weight again, aren't you? I shouldn't worry about it if I were you. It isn't really as though anyone cares about me. Humphrey waited acutely aware of how pathetic that would have sounded to his father. He was almost grateful when Michael carried on speaking. So, he wasn't going to argue then. Obesity isn't healthy, that's all. To what do I owe this rare honour, sir? I thought I was persona non grata these days. Getting a bit of Latin in. Nice one. Michael would have to be impressed with that. What makes you say that? You know, with Barney around now. Sorry, he's changed his name now, I believe, isn't he? We've all got busy lives to lead, you know. Oh, you're telling me. I don't know whether I'm coming or going most of the time. Michael took a walk along the rogues' gallery that represented the sum total of Humphrey's life thus far. What is it that you actually do here, boy? I still don't know. The boy shrugged. Not much. But since you're standing here talking to me at half past twelve on a Monday afternoon, whatever it is I do must be more important than whatever it is you do. I'm planning my wedding, if you must know. Well, I can't really help you on the entertainment front. It's a very busy time of year, is this? Is it? 
I've always found January to be a lot busier. Lots of arguments over Christmas means lots of men looking for new accommodation come the new year. How's the flat? I thought you had a list of repairs that needed my attention. That was about right. A list of repairs that he could just simply fling money at. Oh, it's absolutely fine. I'm gradually getting round to turning all the leaks and drips in it into water features. Let's see, what else? Ah, there are people at the Museum of Natural History who seem to think I may have helped to cultivate a new form of mould on my ceiling. Oh, but I'm afraid I did have to finally call in the pest control people to sort out the kitchen about a month ago. The cockroaches and the mice were going at each other like the sharks and the jets. I'll send you the bill, though. Michael pulled up a chair and, at the third attempt, managed to sit himself down. The pitch of his voice seemed much higher from that position. It was really rather comical. Yes, do send me the bill. I'd be delighted to pay for that. Really? He could forget that, then. I love the makeover, sir. It's very you. It made him look like a twit. It was very him. Was it at Louise's behest, by any chance? Great. A look of classic indignation. That made him look even more ludicrous. Certainly not. Wonderful. He could still pull off that Kenneth Williams impression, then, despite multiple malfunctions in the costume and makeup departments down there at Pinewood. Carry on, don't lose your dignity. He must have been in the middle of filming that one. How is Louise, sir? Michael removed those ridiculous glasses. His cold blue eyes focused sharply on Humphrey's own. Why? Why should you care? Because she is, was, a rather good friend of mine. His father chewed thoughtfully on the arm of his sunglasses for a moment, never once removing his gaze from Humphrey. The boy looked shifty, as well he might. Yes, she's not too well at the moment, actually. She was sick of him already. Oh, the poor thing. Thirty seconds must have passed before either one of them spoke again. Aren't you at all interested in what's wrong with her? Well, of course he was. But knowledge was power. His father was enjoying both at that moment. But if Humphrey could just control his curiosity... That power would soon be defecting to his side. I really don't think it's any of my business. At least Michael had stopped staring at him. He was building up to something, all right. He seemed to notice the envelope in Humphrey's hands and stared at that instead for some time before suddenly getting up from his chair and moving back towards the door. Behind him, the letter was promptly discarded once more as Michael's behaviour became more compelling. He didn't leave, even though he could presumably see the traffic warden hovering menacingly near his front bumper. He didn't even flinch. The game certainly seemed to be afoot. She's sick. Goodness, poor Lou. Every morning, sick as a dog. Just a thought, but if you considered sleeping on the settee for a few nights and giving her something a bit nicer to look at when she first opens her eyes... It might help. How touching. Straight for the place where his belt buckle ought to have been. Michael realised too late that he hadn't come equipped with a belt buckle and spun back round again dramatically, 
She's three months pregnant. Hells. Bells. My congratulations, sir. The son you never had, eh? Oh, I have a son. Humphrey held his breath as a tiny little ripple of excitement moved through the stagnant pond that had become their relationship. It was followed by bigger ripples from every conceivable direction. He is one of the most ubiquitous men in show business in the modern time. In an instant, the surface of that water was flat calm again, to be disturbed thereafter only very gently by the ripples left by each of Humphrey's tears. Fortunately, he just about managed to internalise those. His father would never know how much Humphrey so desperately needed his approval. He couldn't afford to let him know. Not a heartless devil like that. He would probably laugh at him. Mind you, Humphrey would have given as good as he got on that score. Thinking about his father's new hairstyle alone was going to see him out of goodness only knew how many deep depressions over the dark winter months. As was the thought of Barney being actively involved in any sort of useful capacity, in anything even remotely resembling show business. He was a celebrity, that was all. Anthea too. They were not in show business. They might well have been under the impression that they were, as indeed Michael seemed to be, but the two were as different from each other as chalk and cheese. More different even than Humphrey and his father, and that was really going some. Barney had proved to have quite a collection of rare and hidden talents during the show aboard that ship, though. An enterprising and unquestionably more ethical manager than the one he'd managed to find for himself in Anthea might well have allowed him to explore some rather more artistically expressive avenues. Instead of ones that involved him merely walking out of his front door, being snapped by a conveniently waiting photographer, and then wandering back inside again. But to be fair to the manager, perhaps such a thing had just never occurred to him. The DVD that Stanley Kubrick was supposed to have been fast-tracking through the editing suite on the night of that show, the one which would have really showcased the boys' talents, had completely vanished with Louise. And if there was any sort of god in heaven, he would have called that disc home as soon as possible by scratching it irreparably with something mysterious one evening, while it was sitting in its box minding its own business. Or at least, he would have completely done for the last 15 minutes of Humphrey's contribution to things. So you'll be getting married as soon as possible then, I suppose. What makes you say that? Well, doing the decent thing by her and all that. Michael stared at him again. That's an interesting turn of phrase. That's what you would do then, is it? What was he trying to get at? Just how much did he know? Um, you know there's a traffic warden sniffing around your car? No, there isn't. He hadn't even turned round. There is, look. That is not a traffic warden. That is my traffic warden. We work together all over Essex, as a matter of fact. My cars, all of them, are beautiful pieces of machinery. Well built, in pristine condition. They turn heads. Other people envy me. They want them. That's why I like to have someone I at least have the measure of keeping an eye on them for me. It might cost a fair bit in the short term, but it is surely preferable to having any old odds and sods taking advantage of something I care very much about. Wouldn't you say, boy? Humphrey really didn't quite know what to say to that. 
At least it had moved the conversation neatly on from the subject of Louise, though. What's the deal with this image makeover, sir? Seriously? Well, there is something of an age difference between us, you know. So? So? I don't want to look ridiculous standing next to her. If that was truly the case, then he was looking at an epic fail right there. The poor deluded fool. Humphrey almost felt sorry for him. No, he did feel sorry for him. You don't think the distinguished look would be better, sir? Distinguished look? You know, the grey and boring look. Your look. Bless him. He did keep trying to reach out for the moral support of that belt. It was probably too embarrassed to be seen out with him. In much the same way as Louise would very probably be. Look at it this way. She's vibrant and gorgeous, and you're grey and boring. But I mean, the point is, how sexy must you be? That's what people will think. Or how rich must you be? Which I think pretty much amounts to the same thing anyway. Certainly in your case. Michael cast a dispassionate eye over his current attire. What you say does make a certain amount of sense. Thanks very much. But don't chuckle that lot away. We might be able to get a village people tribute act going in due course, if you're game. That would be a no then, would it? And he still wasn't wearing a belt. When is your wedding, sir? I'm not allowed to go into specifics on account of the confidentiality clause we signed in return for exclusive pictures from the event. But it is sometime this month. A Christmas wedding. How predictable. It'll be in the Christmas edition, but by that time we'll be sunning ourselves in Barbados. Blimey! Two holidays in 70 years? She'll be the ruin of you. Michael scuffed the toes of one shoe against the holes in Humphrey's carpet. That's as may be. But I love her. Humphrey hurriedly looked away. Yes, I know. The sincerity in that room was becoming unbearable. Call me old-fashioned, sir, but why would anyone want to buy exclusive pictures of you? Indignation. At least that was a step back towards normality. I'll have you know, boy, that I was one of the most highly regarded barristers of my generation. That might well be the case, but I bet if I open that door right now and ask the first ten people who came by, not one of them would ever have heard of you. That's not my fault, is it? People don't appreciate hard work and above-average intelligence these days. It has never been a case of what you know, not in any situation in life where a person can advance at the expense of others, but never has it been more a case of who you know than it seems to be in this day and age. So who do you know? At least Michael had the courtesy to look awkward. Your ex-wife and her fiancé, of course. That made sense. His manager was an astute businessman, if nothing else. If you had a celebrity in your care, it was imperative that you made the most of him while his star was still in the ascendancy. That meant the shotgun pellet approach, firing him indiscriminately anywhere and everywhere, and hoping that at least something made some sort of an impression. Muscling his way into somebody else's big day and stealing every single photon of their limelight, Sounded like something Barney could do. 
particularly if called upon to pick up any confetti that had been thrown by their crowd of celebrity-seeking guests. Peace by fiddly little peace. So Anthea's going to be there as well then, is she? Chief bridesmaid, yes. It would have been the matron of honour, but she took exception to the title. Something about making her sound old or something. Humphrey grinned. That sounded like his Anthea. It's to be a bit of a joint exclusive. My wedding. Their news. With an air of resignation, the younger man nodded. A date for their own marriage, I expect. No, boy. Her pregnancy. Three months. I tell you, there must have been something besides the norovirus going round on that ship. Wouldn't you say? The room and the view of the street beyond suddenly took on a strong resemblance to a scene from The Matrix. Time seemed to slow down completely. Anthea was pregnant? Everything all right, boy? It's a shock, I suppose. More than 12 years with the woman and you couldn't perform that sort of miracle. Then some new drilling equipment turns up on the scene and strikes oil immediately. What a strange way of putting it. Although it did mean things were revolving around money again, as per usual. After 12 years of general fruitlessness with Anthea, it had been a miracle Humphrey had been able to perform at all, let alone for 15, now potentially really rather relevant minutes. My first grandchild. Imagine. What? How do you mean? As far as the press are concerned, I mean. Humphrey felt relieved. He hoped, sincerely, that he didn't look it. His father really was scrutinising every aspect of him. About the wedding. Yes, sir. The thing is, we didn't want to embarrass you by putting you in any awkward situations. Did Louise want me there? Oh, yes. But she soon came round to my way of thinking, as opposed to yours. I see. So what you're saying is you didn't want me embarrassing you. Michael nodded his approval at the pet traffic warden who was making that car of his look even more beautiful merely by standing next to it. He was a winner. Always. Sometimes the rules had to be blurred a little in order to achieve that. And sometimes he was arguably only the victor from some highly biased perspectives. Nevertheless, he was well on top in virtually everything when it came to that boy. You would probably have turned up in a bridesmaid's dress or something. Humphrey laughed bitterly. Damn that man. That did sound like something he would definitely have done. He might even have caught the bouquet, assuming that it hadn't been fixed, so it would simply fall to the ground in order to give Barney an excuse to bend over seductively in front of the cameras. Anyway, I will be in touch with you. What for? The two men looked at each other. Humphrey had given himself away there, with a reply that had been both too hasty and bathed in telltale tones of panic. He was being expertly cracked apart by a skilled interrogator. And God, how he missed Anthea. As I said, I'll be in touch. Humphrey did a bit better this time, thanks to being somewhat forewarned. He stayed completely silent, and he stayed completely still, and he smiled. 
By the way, what's in the letter? Letter? How strange. Apparently he'd also managed to sneakily inhale half a bottle of helium as well, if that extraordinarily high-pitched voice was anything to go by. I can spot an accountant's letter at a hundred paces, boy. They're second only to missives from the taxman when it comes to setting off an impromptu little symphony amongst my alarm bells. Well? Well what? What does it say? How should Humphrey know? Perhaps it was a Christmas card. They did let you send that sort of thing from prison, right? I'm wasting my time with you, as usual. Michael turned back towards the door, fully intending to leave this time, at his own pace and under his own steam. Not bloody likely. Excuse me, sir. What? Why did you come by? Humphrey watched the back of his father carefully. With no expressions to work with, he was very much clutching at straws, but he could have sworn the man had just shrunk significantly in stature. It's nothing. No, it's not nothing. Clearly it's not nothing. You haven't spoken to me for three months, then suddenly you turn up and tell me all this. Was that all you wanted? Just to watch my reaction, or what? He hadn't been mistaken. His father looked different somehow. Something of the arrogance looked to be gone. I wanted to see you about your mother. Humphrey swallowed hard. That word, in almost any context, always had the ability to round up his tears and have them all set and raring to shout Geronimo in unison as they left by the nearest escape hatch. It was quite ridiculous. He hadn't even seen the woman in almost 30 years. All the same, the word mother conjured up images of warm embraces, gentle smiles and kind and encouraging words. Father, on the other hand, was a word he found cold and empty. Our divorce was expeditiously finalised this morning. Of course. Sorry, it never even occurred to me. If you're getting married, then that means you must have finally had to fork out for a divorce. You really must be in love with Lou, to do that now after all these years. Michael inhaled deeply. Damn that boy. He was in love with her, all right. There was nothing he would not have done for her. Nothing. I didn't have to fork out anything. Your mother was extremely amicable. Yes. Well, perhaps she was just glad to be finally getting rid of you. His father was pathetic. How many times was that now? You are not wearing a belt, OK? As a matter of fact, boy, she didn't have a leg to stand on. She abandoned us, did she not? That was true. Us. That man was the most arrogant, most conceited and most manipulative toe-rag Humphrey had ever encountered. Yet when he heard him referring to the pair of them as us, he still felt the pride of a 15-year-old who had just cheated his way to 91% in his maths test, or of a 16-year-old who had just single-handedly rewritten Greece. He wanted so desperately for that man to love him and to be proud of him. How utterly pitiful was that? And how completely unlikely was that? Especially now. Did you speak to her, sir? 
briefly. Why did you leave? An overwhelming need to swallow at least gave Michael the chance to reflect further upon that question before jumping in feet first with a statement that either blamed her for her selfishness or blamed Humphrey for driving her away. Things have been complicated. They'd both been at fault. Not Humphrey, of course. He'd been blameless. She'd wanted to see him on a regular basis after breaking the 40-minute mile that morning in that milk float. Michael had absolutely forbidden it. But he had done it for the very best of reasons, and with the very best of intentions. He stood by that, because to do otherwise would have been to admit that he could make mistakes, and that was something he just simply did not do. She thought she could do better. End of story. Did she do better? Is she happy? Happy? Damn it all, boy, she's a woman! And as for doing better, modesty forbids me from even contemplating passing comment on that. That was a relief anyway, and arrogant Michael was so much easier to deal with. Just harnessing the energy he would much rather have employed in punching his horrible lights out was enough to give Humphrey the illusion of having at least a part share of the upper hand. The thing is, she may come in to see you. Well, if she does, I hope she brings some suitable identification with her. I would ask you one thing, boy. It isn't a favour, so you needn't dismiss it instantly out of hand purely to spite me. Gosh darn it! Humphrey definitely needed to get himself a new act. I can't promise anything. Michael chose his next words very carefully. Just don't take what she says at face value. What's that supposed to mean? What I said. Just bear in mind there are two sides to every story. Right? If you choose not to, by the way, then it won't bother me in any way. It'll just show me what a stubborn little so-and-so you are. Good afternoon. Humphrey watched him go. He watched him pay whatever had been prearranged with that corrupt guardian of the public streets who really ought to have been trusted to have known better. He watched him slide himself into the driver's seat of his £150,000 rich man's Nissan Micra and he kept on watching him as he sped out of view, giving a fine demonstration of the car's ability to go from naught to ten in half a second and then back the other way again, stopped in his tracks as he had been by a stubborn red traffic light halfway down the high street. He hadn't yet figured out to drive inanimate objects then. Good. Where would Humphrey even begin the analysis of all that lot then? Two pregnancies, his parents divorced, his mother on the loose and potentially looking for him, his accountant in the custody of someone who was hopefully not looking for him, and that was without Bertha Belknap and her hostessing skills, and Simon something or other and his plans to revolutionise Christmas family entertainment. Had he been an inanimate object himself, very much like that brave traffic light, Humphrey would have suffered a catastrophic overload and then sat sulking amongst the carnage until someone could find an engineer who could somehow speak his language. He did the next best thing, the only thing available to a human being under similar pressures. He cleared a space on the top of his desk, rested his head on his freshly folded arms and then sank into a fitful slumber.
He was still dozing, anything but happily, an hour later, when someone else came through the front door. He woke, but stayed right where he was. He needed more information as to the intentions of precisely who was out there, before he let whoever it was know that he was conscious. The open auditions were still technically in full swing, although he was not at all sure he'd be able to give any other cold call of the attention their talents almost certainly would not deserve. Anyone else in Humphrey's position would have given up and gone home already. But then anybody else would have lived in a house worth returning to, not the dump that was steadily falling apart around him. There was a joke, him being a life coach. His own life was a total shambles. Although he had been coping quite well under those pressures before that day, somebody had obviously looked down upon him that day and decided to have a bit of fun at his expense by unlocking a whole new level in the game and making things even more of a mess for him. It made it rather unappealing to even attempt to make sense of any new developments, since there were probably more and more levels that would be unlocked if he ever did so. Hello, Humphrey. So much for playing hard to get. He shot bolt upright in his seat and cast two freshly opened eyes in the direction of the speaker. What was he supposed to call him? What name was he going by these days? Barney? Yeah, that's right. I'm Barney. Great. He was Barney. Humphrey fervently wished he hadn't pursued that line of inquiry now. By the sound of things, he could have called him Humphrey and still got a response. That would have been a much more attractive option. Because it wasn't Humphrey's girlfriend he'd been filmed having vigorous sex with Al Fresco. And it was not Humphrey's fiancée who was presently eating for two somewhere. Barney. Barney was infinitely dangerous. And he had a distinct advantage over Humphrey as he was the only one of them who knew just what he was doing there. Mind you, even trying to ascribe such powers of pre-planning as that to him were quite a shot in the dark, unless Barney had changed dramatically in the past three months. How are you? Barney. That was a reasonable enough opening gambit, particularly since Barney had not yet taken him out with one karate chop. He was, however paying particular attention to any passers-by who happened to look in. Humphrey's heart sank. Not only must Barney have suspected the same thing that he did, but as soon as there was a clear break in the shopping traffic, he was obviously fully intending to do something about it. And that could only really mean one thing. He was planning on bloody singing to him. Without witnesses. Without mercy. Oh, well... Humphrey had a sandwich that was supposed to have been for his lunch, but which would do for his final meal. Opening his desk drawer, he took it out, together with a collection of magazines he'd managed to amass before his self-imposed Anthea ban had come into play. If, by some miracle, he was subsequently found still alive, mumbling incoherently and evidently traumatised, at least the lead detective assigned to his case would be left with a fairly substantial clue as to the identity of his terrifyingly tumulus tormentor. Barney finally decided he'd seen enough of life on the streets and made his way over towards his former manager. 
I'm sorry to have to do this to you, Humphrey. There it was. He really ought to have made a will of some description. He had one of those already, somewhere. But it had been left in a sock while he was still married, and had then been laundered, apparently never to be seen again. Why did one sock always vanish every time he put a load of washing on? And why couldn't it have been the one with the emergency taxi fare in it instead? He'd have to quickly write himself out a new one. Virtually everything he would have to leave would be classed as garbage, but that did lend itself to some rather perverse and personally satisfying ideas. The thought of people he'd worked with and worked for falling over each other to come along and collect a posthumous bag of his dirty laundry or an album full of his correspondences with a local debt collection agency made him positively glow with anticipation. It didn't have to be something written on parchment by quill and then sealed with a signet ring in hot wax either. Just a couple of instructions on any old scrap of paper would do. Would Barney be willing to postpone his attack on him for five minutes, perhaps? He began to rummage through the drawers of his desk again, in search of something upon which to write. A folded piece of paper sitting underneath his emergency bounty bar attracted his immediate attention. Unfolded, it proved to contain nothing more than a signature that read Barney Adams. Interesting, but not relevant. Certainly not now. Leaving aside his collection of blouses and his snoopy tie, it was clear that, boiled down to the basics, he had only one thing of any value worth leaving anyone, and that was his wedding ring. Except that he wouldn't be leaving that to anyone. That was coming with him, that was. If he could just manage to write down that as an instruction to be followed, he could die happy. Well, relatively happy. His death at that moment would undoubtedly make his life easier anyway. He had intended to try to pull out bits and pieces from his day later on that night, one by baffling one. He had hoped to try to make sense of each of them in isolation before taking a series of deep breaths and trying to see how each one fitted into the wider story. He wasn't too sorry that Barney now looked to be planning on helping him out of that one by rendering him incapable of coherent thought. The boy was smacking his right fist into his left palm like Batman trying to figure out the Penguin's latest criminal caper. Humphrey rattled off his last will and testament on the palm of his own left hand and waited to see what Barney might do next. I didn't know what else to do, you see. I've got no choice. I'm going to have to do this. You understand? Well now, Humphrey was an understanding sort of fellow, all right. But there could surely be no justification whatsoever for this boy violently assaulting him, either with hands that had caressed his own ex-wife's beautiful face, or in any sort of audio sense. The only mitigating circumstances from Barney's point of view were that Humphrey had gone to all the trouble of making sure they got together, only to then celebrate his achievements in somewhat over-exuberant fashion by taking Barney's girlfriend on a 15-minute sexual odyssey and then, quite possibly, leaving her pregnant into the bargain. Yes, he was going to die. Well, you must do what you must do, Barney. If there's any consolation, I would probably do the same. Should he stand up to receive his punishment, or would that make him too easy a target? If Barney did decide to go down the singing route, it was a long way to fall to the ground, clutching his ears. 
I shouldn't even be here at all. Anthea suggested it. Et tu, Brute? Oh? That did seem like the safest thing to utter, under the circumstances. It was non-committal, and it was not in any way self-incriminating. It was unfortunate that it might well have sounded like the opening note of a tune he wanted Barney to join in with. It could very easily turn into that scene from Reservoir Dogs if Barney decided to combine music and torture. An act he'd virtually perfected during those jaunts around the local pubs and clubs over the past few years in any case. Still, there was always a bright side to any situation. At least if Barney sliced his ears off, it would mean he wouldn't have to suffer that singing. Humphrey waited for something, anything, to happen. There were certain things in the situation that reminded him of those appointments in his father's study. The anticipation, the adrenaline, the complete lack of any idea as to what his protagonist was about to do, or usually of even what had initially irked him. Barney was clearly lost in his own thoughts, very much the same way Michael always had been. Humphrey wasn't about to provoke this situation, though, because, unlike virtually all of those father and son moments of decades earlier, this time he would thoroughly deserve whatever punishment came his way. Do you think anyone can see us in here, Humphrey? Witnesses, do you mean? Pardon? I should think that... Provided you don't draw attention to yourself in any way, nobody's even going to know you're ever in here. That included walking casually away from the scene afterwards, as opposed to running at full pelt across two lanes of busy traffic, with cars screeching to a halt and their drivers getting a decent look at you for future photofit purposes. Common sense, all that, surely. All the same, bearing in mind who Humphrey was dealing with, it might just be worth mentioning. I mean, I should be all right. I'm in disguise, you see. Humphrey looked him up and down. It didn't take long, because Barney was face to face with him. Thank God. From that cursory glance, there seemed to be no difference whatsoever in his appearance. In disguise? He didn't look happy, that much was clear. He looked sad, anguished even. Humphrey had done that to him without two thoughts as to the ultimate consequences. Had he been aware of the likelihood of this scenario as he was preparing to explore completely uncharted territory on that outer deck with Anthea, he would have told her where to go, wouldn't he? She had certainly shown him where to go. She'd been almost as responsible as he was for the awful betrayal of this boy. Closure, indeed. And yet... Even with the benefit of a huge amount of hindsight, there was absolutely no point in him even pretending that he regretted it. He really was a lowlife. You say you're in disguise, Barney? Yes, it's good, isn't it? But you're not in disguise, Barney. No, I am. I thought that disguising myself as me would be the best disguise going. Nobody would ever think it was me at all. It must be one of the signs of an approaching mental collapse when something Barney Adams has figured out all by himself actually seems to make sense to you. Who are you hiding from? Fans? Or the precogs from Minority Report who had already got a read on what he was planning. 
My manager. You must know what sort of turn my career has taken. This was what was generally referred to as a right old turn up for the books. All fear of violence vanished into the ether. The bloke was there looking for his help. You are here to see me about your career? Yes. Oh, thank goodness. It was to be hoped that that sudden rendition of Ode to Joy, which seemed to have just blasted its way into existence from absolutely nowhere, was indeed playing in his own private Albert Hall, and not something in general circulation for Barney to start humming along to. Barney's humming was like taking that first biscuit in a packet. A nice experience, a pleasurable experience, except that it invariably left a person with the urge to scoff the whole packet, or to launch into a little something by Tom Jones. And the only difference between the two scenarios was that one involved opening your mouth and flinging junk in, while the other was more interested in opening his mouth and hurling junk out. I was supposed to be doing my programme on the hospital radio at the moment. Really? What's that all about then? Well, it was all over the papers. It's part of the unpaid aspect of my community service. You must have seen it. Humphrey had, of course, been totally unaware of every aspect of that entire development. He thought about Anthea a thousand times a day, and when he thought of her, she was always happy, never missing him, because he wouldn't have been able to function on a day-to-day basis if he had ever, for one moment, thought of her miserable and dejected. She had spent twelve whole years and then some in his company like that, and she deserved so much better. However, it had proved easier for his own personal well-being not to actually think about Barney in any way, given the important part he was, no doubt, playing in keeping that woman happy. Helping him along in this mindset was the knowledge that most other superannuated mentors would have developed an almost obsessive need to monitor their former charges, subconsciously willing them to fail. Humphrey might well have been a part-time bastard, but he was sure he was better than that. Complete ignorance had therefore seemed like the very best bet. Community service, eh? Well, I expect it was something typically cliched that got you stuck with that, was it? What are we talking about, a brawl? Or did you punch one of your paparazzi fellas? Drunk and disorderly. Don't tell me it was that one, Barney. Barney gulped nervously. I put the wrong bin out. Humphrey grinned back at him. He simply couldn't help it. Had it been dusty? Had that been it? They fast-tracked me through the courts just so they could make an example of me. Because I'm famous, see? You say they fast-tracked you. Was that Barney Adams you or the other one? The other one. But which one are you? I'm Barney Adams. But he doesn't exist. What do people shout at you in the street? Barney thought carefully. All right, mate, let's see your ass cheeks. Well, Humphrey had warned him. Fame was a very demanding mistress. And God, how he missed Anthea. Just looking at Barney's miserable face was starting to severely depress him. Was it also depressing her? The delight Humphrey had experienced in not being beaten to a pulp by him could not contend with a face like that. 
there was only one positive, and that was the revelation that Barney did in fact have a whole new expression in his repertoire to play with. That particular one might well be soul-destroying to have to fix one's gaze upon. But it did make a change from the private Godfrey look of wide-eyed innocence his public must have been more familiar with. It was obviously a physical manifestation of Barney's own slide into the depravities of modern-day fame. And where was my father when all this was going on? I thought he'd virtually adopted you. Well, yes, but only when there are photographers around. Other than that, I think he finds me quite annoying. Ha! Huh. They might have been brothers. He invited Barney to sit down and then offered him the other half of his cheese and tomato sandwich. I'm not allowed to eat that. Thanks anyway. I can't sit down either. It's bad for my posture. What, are you on a diet or something? Humphrey carried on with his lunch and eyed him suspiciously. On top of everything else, Barney now seemed to be grimacing at him, apparently in some considerable pain. Sort of a diet, yes. I'm not allowed to eat anything that might affect the shape of the bum. It's in my contract, apparently. Just like I have to clench the bum cheeks 500 times a day. Humphrey put down his sandwich, his appetite gone, quite possibly forever. Are you clenching now, Barney? Well, I thought I might get a few in now, you know. Please don't. I dread to think what the Feng Shui books would have to say about that. This is my place of work. I haven't got one of those. You're lucky. That was a stupid thing to say. Barney obviously hadn't changed too much during the time he'd been away from him. His place of work was the public eye. And he had chosen it all by himself, in spite of Humphrey's advice. Or was that because of it? You belong to the public now, mate. Barney angrily walked back over to the window. He looked to the heavens in rather melodramatic style. It was a tableau which would have been rather moving, had not the entire pose been lifted straight from a photo shoot he'd done to promote ripe, firm avocados for one of the major supermarkets, a glossy reproduction of which was on the inside cover of the magazine that Humphrey was just flicking through. He tried desperately to avert his gaze from the real fruit bowl currently on display. He might just buy himself a couple of avocados on the way home, though. Not that he could afford them. Yes, he could just imagine sinking his teeth into one of those ripe, firm... I might well belong to the public, but they have no idea what my life is really like. It's a dog's life. That's what I lead. Humphrey silently thanked Barney for his timely intervention. But he didn't remain grateful for long. The image of a dog performing muscle-tightening exercises of such a horrific nature would undoubtedly be seared into Humphrey's mind until the day the Grim Reaper came to knock for him. I've got news for you, son. Nobody gives a monkeys about what your life is really like. Provided he was making sure Anthea was happy, of course. They might just care about that. Humphrey certainly did. I haven't sung anything for months, you know. It's in my contract. Humphrey gave another silent word of thanks. Whatever the horrors of Barney's current predicament, the fact that they were preventing him from singing was a significant sterling silver lining. Although that particular little legal nuance had been suggested by Humphrey, 
not to protect an unsuspecting public, but to maintain something of the illusion surrounding the quite appalling girls, girls, girls. The boundaries of who was who and what their input may have been with regard to it had become blurred completely by Barney's enforced name change. But the fact remained, anyone who heard him singing now would have put two and two together and smelled a rat. Especially Anthea, who had known only two things about the boy when she'd originally gone out with him. The potential of his bum cheeks and the sentiments expressed by him in that song. Fast-forwarding things a little, she might also have been expecting him to be measuring up in her bedroom in anticipation of the arrival of a decent-sized snooker table and some bunk beds. Things were certainly blurred, all right. Tell me everything then, son. Tell me about your career. I could already have guessed that it doesn't involve singing in any way because, I mean, the planet is still in one piece, isn't it? Humphrey stopped. Sarcasm was beneath him. Besides, it was completely wasted on a man like Barney. He believed he could sing. No other joke could ever come even close to rivalling that one. Barney took a deep breath, alarming Humphrey almost indescribably in the process. He wasn't going to sing to him now, for old time's sake, surely. My career? Well, I get to stand around a lot and then I get to bend over. Quite a lot. And, well, that's just about it, really. But you're universally famous. There's probably not a magazine on the shelves at Smith's that doesn't have your arse somewhere in it. And what about Anthea? Barney sighed. My life's a living hell, Humphrey. Humphrey. Ha! That's supposed to be me, you know. The perfect man. I can't eat what I like. I can't wear what I like. I can't do what I like. I barely see Anthea. When I do, she doesn't even look like Anthea. How do you mean? You know, she doesn't look like she does in the photographs. And, you know, she doesn't smile quite so much. If at all. But you've got the real Anthea. Lucky, lucky swine. Oh, I'll take any Anthea, believe you me. The real Humphrey shifted uncomfortably in his chair. But none of mine are happy. More than brothers. They were one and the same person. Except that one of them had a much bigger build. And the other one, a much nicer ass. I know Anthea quite well, son. At least, I think I do. She probably is happy. She just has rather a lot of difficulty in showing it, that's all. Has she thrown anything at you yet? Barney shook his head. Well, there you are, then. She's happy. You would soon know if she wasn't, believe me. I'm going to be a dad, you know. Humphrey felt winded. If the word father sent the surrounding temperature plummeting by 50 degrees, the word dad bathed it in sunshine. It brought its own kite and its own football. It knew all about everything and wanted nothing more than to share it with anyone lucky enough to be able to call it by its name. As for Barney, even using that word in his own context made him look happy almost beyond any other words. Humphrey couldn't help but smile back at him. Even if, by some chance, Humphrey was the father, and he had never wished so hard for something not to happen, ever in his lifetime, Barney would always be the dad.
Somehow, he managed to coax his own rather paternal-sounding voice from the retirement home it had been condemned to since the last time he'd spoken with Barney. He figured he might try to lighten it up with a bit of humour. Barney would definitely not have been able to cope with the sight of him crying. That'll be good for publicity. She should be able to name her price in any deal to plug a maternity bra, I would have thought. Oh, God. Now Barney was crying. That would start Humphrey off if they weren't very careful. You'll be a great dad, Barney. I mean to say, you're practically a child yourself, aren't you? You haven't had a chance to get bogged down with the problems of the entire world, nor to disappear up your own arsehole. You'll be brilliant. Barney sobbed even more uncontrollably. Well done, Lovewell. There was nothing like making a bad situation worse. I'm not Barney any more, though, am I? I'm Humphrey. It might as well be your baby. No offence. Poor little lad. If only he knew. What does Anthea call you? Barney briefly popped into some kind of parallel dream world. She calls me her baby. Or sometimes she uses one of the pet names she has for me based on one or two of my bits and pieces. But I don't feel comfortable mentioning those to her ex-husband. Yuck! Thank Christ for that. I meant, does she call you Barney? Oh, I see. Yeah, Barney. That's me. But you have changed your name. Barney nodded slowly. So change it back. I don't think I'm allowed to. It's in the contract. Stuff that for a soft-boiled egg in a game of soldiers. Then again, Humphrey was on shaky ground on that whole subject, since that name change had been his idea in the first place. That was before he'd been aware of Anthea getting her boobs out for the good citizens of Liverpool, and before he'd realised just what a star she was going to be. And before the wonderful news of this baby. A name means nothing, son. You take it from me. Was it wrong that he was now rather intrigued as to what exactly Anthea did call him? Knowing her, she would have found some hitherto unconsidered attribute to mark out for special attention, just so she wasn't seen as being too predictable. She probably called him Brains or something like that. Snoopy. That had been her name for Humphrey whenever he made a rare appearance in one of her good books. He'd assumed at first that it was because of his most favourite tie, but she'd always been quite evasive whenever he'd casually mentioned it. This had led eventually to the inevitable conclusion it was a title based more on the fact that he had big ears, a huge nose, and was more usually to be found in the vicinity of some kind of doghouse. His best friend and housemate for many years had been a bird too, although Anthea had thankfully never been aware of that fact. Otherwise she would have flung him out on his big ears, slammed the door shut on his big nose and had his mail forwarded permanently to that doghouse. How was Anthea coping with having women the world over lusting after God's gift over there? She probably hadn't had a chance to be jealous yet, not with them both being in the first throes of passion and not with Sandra anywhere in the vicinity for her sister to throw two fingers at whenever she felt insecure enough to want to stake her claim to God's gift there relatively harmlessly and with no arguments. Her sister represented the whole of the female species in that regard. 
As if Sandra would really care anyway, a happily married woman like that. There's going to be a big announcement in the press next week. Aha! So, Beaker's wedding was next week then, was it? We're supposed to be there, Anthea and I. So I understand, yes. You're going to announce your pregnancy, thereby upstaging that man and his own nuptials. Well done, Barney. Oh no, it'll be Humphrey, won't it? Well, well done me. It was just the sort of thing you would have done, too. Quite uncanny. No, I'm going on my own while Anthea announces to the world that she's leaving me. Barney sobbed in anguish. I beg your pardon. They want us to break up. I beg your pardon, son, but who is they? Our management. He says we might not be allowed to get back together again either. She's going to throw me out for cheating on her. It's good for publicity. Humphrey glared at him. I beg your pardon. Barney nodded again. Humphrey began to punch his right fist into his left palm, the same way Barney had done earlier. It's going to be in all the papers at the weekend. Measured, regular breathing. That was the key. It would help him to keep calm. Plus it was an absolutely vital component of all the best martial art moves. And by golly were there a few of those that seemed appealing to Humphrey. Are you cheating on that absolutely wonderful woman? Barney looked stunned by the very idea. No, of course not. Even if I wanted to, she'd kill me. Although probably quite true, that was not quite as unequivocal a statement as Humphrey would have preferred to hear from him under the circumstances. He waited patiently until Barney finally got the hint that his former manager expected more information from him. That was five minutes of his life his former manager would never get back. People are always going on at me about my image. Nothing's real anymore, except the bum, of course. Well, the other night they told me to turn up at that new nightclub. You know, the one on the road into Basildon. I see. And where was Anthea? She doesn't like to go out anymore. I mean, she's pregnant. People put on weight, don't they? The papers have been having a go at her, calling her cuddly and all that. She's stopped eating now and everything. Humphrey shuddered, his mind already submitting its claim for overtime expenses. People had actually been describing Anthea as being cuddly. That meant fat in any woman's thesaurus. What happened at the nightclub, son? Well, first of all I had to pick up £3.60 in tenpence pieces. That was so the photographers could get a good look at me modelling a certain brand of jeans, you see. Then I gave that £3.60 to a homeless bloke who just happened to be there, in full view of the photographers, to put towards the price of a deposit on a new house. That's going to be used as the opening scene of his new 12-part reality show, by the way. Humphrey rested his chin on his hand and opened his eyes a little wider. Well, I didn't even go into the club because before I could even get there, I was attacked from all directions by a gang of big-boobed, high-heeled, fake-tanned floozies. 
Are you sure you didn't just nod off while you were picking up your loose change, Barney? Because the rest of that sounds like everything you used to tell me you ever dreamed of. Do you know what it feels like to have women like that desperate to have their pictures taken with you? Do I know what it's like to always be the ugliest person in any photograph, do you mean? Barney thumped the desk with such a release of pent-up rage that Humphrey felt compelled to open the drawer and check on the welfare of his emergency bounty bar. It looked fine. It looked enticing. Humphrey would allow it to lead him shamelessly down the path of self-indulgence as soon as he'd removed Barney from his present tense. Where was your manager while all this was going on? He was calling me a cab. Good. So you got into that cab and it drove you home. Whereupon you discovered Anthea lying naked on her bottom bunk waiting for you. You forgot about every single aspect of any part of your evening spent away from her and then you proceeded to make love to her for the rest of the night in a variety of weird and wonderful ways, none of which came even close to exceeding a period of 15 minutes. Right? Not exactly. Of course, 15 minutes would be nothing to a man with a backside like his. But the rest of that scenario must have been pretty much on the money, surely. You can't tell me you haven't managed to come up with some sort of a way to combine the time you spend worshipping Anthea with your 500 daily cheek clenches. Everyone who sees you in those magazines will assume that's what you two spend every waking moment doing anyway. The lucky, lucky swine. Not anymore. Okay, slightly too much information imparted there, but there was evidently something very wrong within the court of the golden couple. Their choice of auxiliary staff had been duff for one thing. Well, he told me to get into the cab, but then he said that one of these women was going to be sharing it with me and that I should help her into it, you see, which I did. Sat there like lemons for blue and ages we were, waiting for this photographer bloke to get just the right angle. And then, quick as a flash, this woman opened her legs like an Olympic gymnast, flung her arms around my neck and then planted a great big kiss on me. Ouch. I didn't kiss her. That doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. She got out, I drove off, and Anthea's going to dump me when she sees those pictures. Fame. There it was in all its dubious glory. A paparazzo bivouac outside every night spot, every supermarket, every bottle bank, every hairdresser's. People with cameras everywhere, just waiting for any sudden fame-hungry trollop alert. I think you're getting a bit carried away here, Barney. Anthea's not daft. I'm sure she knows the difference between reality and imagination. Although she had blurred her own boundaries on that one by creating a mythical husband with greater athleticism than Daly Thompson. Perhaps when you reached a certain level of life, there simply was no difference between reality and imagination. It's very simple, son. You just tell this manager of yours where to get off. In spades. Barney punched the wall this time. Did the insurance policy for that office cover damage caused by acts of a sex god? Never mind. It wasn't as though Humphrey had been able to afford to keep up the payment on the premiums anyway. I can't do that. It's part of the contract we signed. Both of us. We do exactly what he tells us and he makes us rich and famous. 
and completely and utterly miserable. Didn't you read it first? No. You always told me they weren't worth worrying about. That's why you never bothered with them. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you just sign any old one without reading it. You weren't there to help me, you see. I got a bit confused. Everyone was making a fuss of Anthea and I just got confused. You weren't there to help me. It was Humphrey's fault then. He'd had a tiny inkling that might well turn out to be the case. With all this talk of unscrupulous new managers and trollops in taxis, the actual mechanics of how that was going to be achieved had momentarily eluded him. But it was true. He had simply naffed off in the first available vehicle and left this lad to it. Honestly, though, he couldn't be expected to sort out everybody's problems all the time, surely. I did assume that my father was planning on advising you. He is a repellent human being, greedy, manipulative and as greasy as a sunbathing olive. But he is a damn good lawyer. Almost by definition, I should think. Well, he did speak to him on the telephone before he went to meet him, you know. But he was a bit too busy to come with us. Naturally. At least it was nice to know that kissing goodbye to all your principles and then drinking whiskey with the git had no bearing on how badly he could ultimately treat you then. Barney had probably been coerced into calling him Dad as well. Humphrey felt physically ill. It was time to break up the emergency bounty bar. He wouldn't trouble Barney's conscience by offering half of it to him. See? He could be a nice guy. In four bites, the entire thing was gone. Funny, chocolate bars must have been bigger in the old days. Never mind. He could continue his procrastinations for at least the next two days by trying to pick the pieces of coconut out of his teeth with a toothpick. He still had a few of those left over from the packet he bought in Scotland after he'd abandoned ship on that quite remarkable experience. The dental problems there had stemmed from a bounty as well, and where it had temporarily resided in between mouthfuls. And indeed, in between mouthfuls. And that was about as much procrastination as he could comfortably handle at that moment without throwing open all the windows. Do you have that contract on you at all? Barney shook his head. No, it's too big to carry around with me. Anthea uses it to stand on, to reach the back of the top shelf of the airing cupboard. That meant two things. One, that Barney's life would not be his own while that document remained in existence. And two, that Anthea had finally broken out the underwear collection she'd been maintaining for years in pristine condition, like an exhibit in the V&A. This boy must have made her feel attractive. Their relationship was serious. That was a fact which needed facing. Humphrey needed more chocolate. That was another fact that needed addressing as soon as possible. You've got to help me, Humphrey. For my sake. For Anthea's. For my mother's sake. Just a minute. You and Anthea are by. But what has your dear old mum got to do with the price of a kiss and tell exclusive? It was her idea to come and see you. I thought you said it was Anthea's idea. You're not still getting the two of them mixed up now, are you, Barney? No, no, I mean originally. It was her idea for me to come and audition for you. Here, in this office. What was it? Three years ago? Humphrey nodded. He had the receipt for the two replacement windows somewhere around there to prove it. 
He'd always imagined Barney's mum to be a kind and gentle old soul. Now it turned out she'd been the modern-day equivalent of Ma Barker. Yes, he would very much like a few words with her. She's followed every moment of my career. She's collected everything. Every entertainment review, every riot report. Do you know, she even used to listen into the police frequencies whenever I used to play a gig, just so she could hear my name mentioned. That's devotion, all right, Barney. She has my pictures all over her walls, you know. Every single one. I'm talking headshots, mugshots, bum shots, the lot. There are an awful lot of those, of course. The bum shots. Humphrey tried to visualise such a unique decor. The concept of a maternal love so strong that it could transcend all the boundaries of respectable decorating by allowing multiple images of that man's arse cheeks to adorn every wall was really quite something. Humphrey wouldn't even recognise his own mother if she were to walk right past him in the street. Which she more than likely did, quite deliberately, twenty times a day. Too ashamed to speak to him in case he hated her, but happy just to see him and to know he was doing all right. Except that he wasn't doing all right. Not by a long way. So that was very much that then. Besides, there was no reason on earth why she should ever give a stuff how he was. She'd probably remembered him as a smaller, hopefully marginally less irritating version of the husband she'd grown to resent and could hardly wait to make her escape from. Humphrey hoped sincerely that she was happy, though, wherever she was. She had disappeared from his life and abandoned him to the mercies of his father, but it was very important to him that she was happy. Otherwise, everything else would have seemed a bit pointless. Does she mind being Humphrey Lovewell's mum as well now? Or does she not get involved with any of that? She gave an interview for one of the celebrity magazines just the other day, actually, saying how proud she was to be Humphrey's mum and what a good man he was. I got quite jealous, actually. But you're him. I'd give anything to have my mother say something like that about me. The two men climbed aboard two different trains of thought and travelled silently to the next station on each respective line. She would have liked to have seen my show. On the boat, you know. Well, she was there in spirit. Brought to life by me. Quite brilliantly, I thought. Oh, well, yes. You look just like her, too. But she still would have liked to have seen it for herself. She couldn't quite believe it when I told her how good I was in that. Humphrey hadn't quite believed it either. He'd even managed to wreck that aspect of Barney's career, turning Stanley Kubrick's harmless little U-certificate recording into something from one of the copious collection of satellite channels to the left of the BBC regional programmes on the main menu. Louise might still have that in her possession. His stepmother. Holy cow, his pregnant stepmother. Jeez, Louise. Where is Anthea now? She's at her shop. Humphrey stared at him, wide-eyed. I thought she'd close that place down. Not that he went by there much anymore. He was rather afraid of what, or indeed who, he might find there. No, she keeps telling me that this fame thing won't last and that we need to plan for the future. She was one sensible girl, Anthea. God, he missed her. I hope she's right, Humphrey. 
She's a woman's son. Of course she's right. Barney smiled. That was more like it. I'm going to be a dad, Humphrey. That's all I care about. I don't give a toss about money, and I don't give a stuff about being famous. If you can just help me get out of that contract, I'll sweep the streets. I'll become a postman. Dear Barney, so simple. Not mentally, at least, not entirely. He was simple in his whole outlook and approach to things. Contracts couldn't simply vanish into thin air, not in the grown-up world. People ended up with things like their kneecaps shattered or their faces rearranged when they tried messing around with contracts in the grown-up world. Barney's sojourn into that life so far had been an eye-opener, thanks in no small part to the highly dubious practices of that manager of his. Humphrey was quite fond of his kneecaps. The face, not so much. The older he got, the more he seemed to resemble Michael. He might well be worth having a one-sided conversation with a no-neck thug armed with a baseball bat, purely to disguise that awful legacy. And still the list of alternative jobs Barney would be willing to take continued. He was choosing potential occupations from across quite a wide spectrum, although he was probably setting his sights rather too high with the post of Prime Minister. Then again, he was actively looking to rebel against the sort of vacuous existence he'd spent most of his life trying so desperately to grab a tenuous hold of. That might just touch more public nerves than even his singing had ever managed to, and that really would be saying something. Why couldn't he be Prime Minister? As Barney Adams, of course, if for no other reason than the fact that it would really get up Michael's nose that he couldn't personally gain from the boy's achievements in any way whatsoever. Being a simple soul wouldn't have stopped him. He was too honest, though. That probably would. Yet he had more compassion and sense of responsibility than some of the most financially wealthy and supposedly intelligent men in the world. Were you listening out there, Michael Lovewell, QC? There was still a career available to Barney as a professional entertainer. They mustn't any of them forget that. Anything but singing. He had done enough on that boat to prove he could keep an audience entertained using more gentle methods, and he was very likeable as a person. Humphrey looked at him thoughtfully. He had missed working with him. Damn it, he'd missed having him around. Life was dull around there without him. No angry mobs, no baying crowds, just normal day-to-day -day activities. In other words, boredom. Could he cope with having to look at Barney and Anthea together? Could he cope with the guilt if he did nothing and they were driven apart? And then, of course, there was the baby. I would even become a milkman, and early mornings really don't agree with me, as you know. Humphrey laughed out loud at the very idea of Anthea letting him out on a milk round on his own, and at the mercy of every bored housewife who had ever seen a Robin Asquith film. It was never going to happen. A milkman? Are they still about? I don't know. My dad was one, that's all. Humphrey frowned at him. You've never mentioned that before. Barney blinked innocently back. No? No. Oh, well, he was. When? Years ago. I don't know when. Where was his round? Was it around here? Why? 
just interested, that's all. I don't know. Sorry. Are they married, your parents? No. Why not? How should I know? Humphrey narrowed his eyes and looked at Barney through a range of different angles as his head inclined slowly, first to the right and then to the left. That whole idea was ridiculous, ludicrous. And yet, it was the sort of day where an idea like that might well have felt rather at home. He might well have felt quite comfortable lining up and taking its chances. No, it was a complete non-starter. What do you say, Humphrey? For Mum? Mum? Yeah, Mum. What's your Mum's name? Humphrey held his breath. The whole idea was ridiculous and ludicrous, remember? Barney looked confused. Mum? Humphrey was beginning to grow impatient. The whole idea was ridiculous and ludicrous, remember? No, what is your mum's name? I just told you, mum. Of course, how stupid of Humphrey to have even persevered with this daft line of questioning. The whole idea was ridiculous and ludicrous, and it was becoming even more ridiculous and ludicrous by the minute. I should like to meet your mum, Barney. Would that be possible, do you think? I can ask her. Yes, you do that. Are you going to help us? There was silence. A long but meaningful silence as Humphrey contemplated the events of the day thus far. His world appeared to have gone completely haywire and the starting point seemed to have been chucking out Bertha Belknap. She could have been a wizard in disguise, testing him to see if he was the sort of man who could see past that chest of hers. Even the woman herself probably could not have performed a feat like that, so that did seem a bit rich. But wizards could presumably make up the rules as they went along. If only he'd let her go and get that bottle of lemonade, he might still have a life that made some kind of sense. The life he'd had that morning, where nobody cared about him, nobody needed him, and where he had achieved nothing of any real note whatsoever. What the hell? He never cared much for lemonade anyway. Of course I help you, son. If I can. Barney sighed with relief as the weight of the world was lifted from his shoulders, transferred onto a low loader, and subsequently dumped onto Humphrey. The burden felt surprisingly light to him. But then his perception of most problems now was vastly different to Barney's. Humphrey had nothing whatsoever to lose and no future for himself to have to worry about. He could do anything, anything at all. I'd better see Anthea before I do anything else. The shop, right? Barney nodded. Right. Right.